Hello and welcome everybody to this week's DevCentral Connects. I'm just back from PTO, so you know, bear with me while I figure out how to live stream again. It has been a very busy summer. I know, I think it was like a month and a half ago, maybe two months ago, I shared that we would take a little bit of a breather with the weekly live streams. I thought it might be, you know, every other week or so. Turns out that we took a pretty good break. Bunch of us had PTO. Jason actually just moved houses, moved states, actually. So congratulations to Jason on his new home and moving closer to family. We had a couple of events that we did as well. I was just at Black Hat most recently. So check out community.f5.com. There's an article on there with all the videos that I did at Black Hat, which was really fun. Awesome to see that community and going to a security conference like that and interacting with people as well. So I had a great time with that, did a lot of content, got to actually chat with two folks that are amazing at F5 that I love. Dan Woods, we've talked to him before through Dev Central previously, and then Kara Sprague, who is our chief product officer at F5. So you might not realize this is a big deal for Dev Central. We're kind of moving up the ranks of all of the folks at F5 getting to actually speak to our chief product officer and the PR folks allowing us to have some time with her. It was super awesome and, and I really enjoyed getting to have a chat with her. So I check out that video as well. It's really cool because, you know, Kara is as chief product officer, she's responsible for molding all of the stuff that is, you know, eventually in the hands of our customers. And so to get insight on her thoughts and where things are heading and, you know, plans for the future, Amazing to get to chat with her on that and, and pick her brain and, and see where where she thinks things are going. So uh, amazing conversation. I will note as well, well, we're we're probably not going to live stream weekly going forward just to be able to manage schedules and whatnot. But what you can expect is we'll still be live streaming, you know, on a, on a semi-regular basis. And it will be between the Dev Central Connects where we jump on and we chat with folks kind of outside of the F5 community so we can get lots of insights coming into our community. But also Jason's Build It Live or his Coding Live sessions, uh, those will be happening in addition to that as well. They, they always have been. But one is actually coming up this Friday and it is Coding Live, iRules Tracing. And so... You know, Jason and his eyes rules, he'll be able to craft up really cool solutions and show you how to do more with your F5, which is what this community is all about, being able to extract more value out of your F5. So look for that. That's this Friday, 9 a.m. Pacific. So if you just go to youtube.com slash devcentral, you should see the placeholder for that. And then you can put a notification on that. If you're subscribed already, you should get a notification. Or if you're just following us on X, not Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, all of those platforms we're streaming to as well. So lots of stuff to look out for and more events that we'll be heading out to as well. That's part of the scheduling as well is that you know we're, we're starting to see more in-person events happening. And so Def Central is able to actually head out to some of these and, and see and meet with the community. And so if there's any topics that you might find interesting or that you think would be interesting, let us know, give us feedback as well. We'd love to go explore those topics from our perspective and, and bring back information for folks. So one of the topics that I'm particularly interested in has always been authentication and authorization. And this was something that for many years dealt with when I was out in the field as a solutions engineer for F5. We were helping out a lot of customers when it came to authentication 
as the reverse proxy. We could do pre-authentication in a really neat location. And so I haven't touched all of this stuff in a little while now, but we actually are bringing on Dan Moore. Dan has been on DevCentral Connects for multiple times now at this point. He is head of developer relations at FusionAuth, and he is going to be our expert today when it comes to OAuth security. So without further ado, let me bring on Dan, who's waiting in the wings. Dan, how are you doing? Oh, you're on mute. I think that happened last time. Thanks for having me. I'm doing great. Awesome. Yeah. Thanks for jumping on again. You know, super excited to be able to chat about OAuth security. I don't think the OAuth security aspect is something that I got to dive into a, a lot previously. So would love to kind of, you know, hear about what you're seeing out there and maybe kind of take us through some of the, the nuts and bolts of this, what people have to pay attention to when it comes to OAuth security. Sure, sure. So I think one of the reasons that I love OAuth and actually standards in general is that you get to leverage kind of all kinds of expertise from, from people that are paid big salaries by big companies that you probably couldn't get a, a coffee day with. And so the first place I always think of starting with when I think about OAuth security is the standards documents. And mm -hmm. yes, they're kind of a little bit hard to parse, slow moving in some ways, but they're very thorough. And the two that I wanted to call out are there's a best current practices document. And I think I can share both these links with you so you can put them in the show notes and whatnot. But that goes through a number of different scenarios that you might want to address in your OAuth implementation and the kinds of attacks that you might expect and mitigation means. And I just looked at it pretty briefly and I think I want to say there are maybe 20 different kinds of attacks. And not all these attacks will actually apply to your situation, right? Like one that I just want to call out is called a mix-up attack, which is where you're getting a token, an OAuth token from two different authorization servers, like because you're calling two different APIs or something like that. And there are mitigation means, but if you only ever talk to one OAuth server, then this attack doesn't apply to you. So it's always worthwhile to kind of just review that and, and scan this. And I don't think you need to deeply understand, obviously it's best if you can deeply understand it, but I think being aware of in what context an attack would be possible will lead you to then say, oh, you know, I have two authorization servers in this scenario. I'm going to go review this BCP and dig into kind of what I can do to mitigate this. Cool. Awesome. I think the, the research team is going to try to dig up some of those articles as well, but uh, the standard docs for, for OAuth. But, uh, but yeah, I'll let awesome. you keep going there. Yep. And then the other one is OAuth 2.1. So OAuth 2 was, it was, became an RFC in 2012. And obviously there's been a few things that have changed since 2012. And so Aaron Parecki, who's one of the folks at Okta, has been leading the charge for a couple of years, actually. Kind of 2020 was when they first brought this up and there was just eight drafts since then. And this is basically a codification of like best practices around OAuth 2 in general. So it's things like they aren't deprecating the implicit flow but they are basically not mentioning it. And they're doing things like if you have a refresh token, then they want you to either bind it to a client cryptographically, or you can have them be one-time use so that there's just a higher level of security around them. Other things include basically really encouraging Pixie everywhere. And we can talk about what Pixie is in a little bit, but the O2.1 is a little more, less kind of, use case oriented and more like, hey, here's a generic best practices 
that we've really condensed everything. And again, that one is, both of these actually are not officially stamps, but they've been through many revisions and it's definitely worthwhile for anyone who's looking at kind of being in the OAuth space to, to look at them and review them. Yeah. Nice. Okay, cool. Awesome. When, when it comes to the implementation of it, I guess, or is, you know, is this the right direction that you want to go for kind of next things that you want to chat about? I was going to say, you know, implementation wise, this depends on what packages you're using or, you know, how deep you're getting into the implementation as opposed to just kind of offloading it to a provider. Sure. I mean, I think that you need to, even if you're offloading stuff to a provider, like most providers give you a lot of switches, right? And a lot of providers focus on backwards compatibility. And so I think you need to be, I don't think you need to be aware of like implementation details of these particular things, but I think you need to be aware of what questions to ask and also what switches to flip conceivably, right? Again, depending on how much support you have from a provider or, or other things. And then kind of with the BCP, provider is going to give you like a buffet of options, but they don't know exactly what scenarios you're in, right? Mm-hmm. So you, that, that to me is, if I had to pick one doc for you to read, it'd probably be the BCP, even though it's not perfect because no document's ever perfect. It's just going to be kind of more thorough. And that's the one where you can kind of map, oh, here's how I'm planning to use this, this system to what attacks the community has found and the mitigation measures that you should look at implementing. But I'm happy cool. to, to dive into kind of like some specifics. Sure. I, that was pretty high level, right? Like read the standards doc, yeah. right? But the, the first one I'd say is using Pixie, which is stands for proof key of code exchange. And this is an option. It was, it is a full RFC. I want to say it's, it starts with seven. I don't remember the actual number. But the nice thing about this, so, so the main attack this is meant to mitigate is if you're, well, there, there's multiple ones, but well, how, how deep do you want me to go? Like I can actually kind of walk through like the actual implementation of it. If that would be helpful at a high level, like kind of like at a boxes level or I yeah. can say what's useful. What, what, what do you want to do? Yeah, let's walk through that. Just, to, you know, we can assume that folks need to kind of get a ground up uh, look at this. Sure. Okay, cool. So the, the big thing that, that, that Pixie protects against is... Well, first of all, there's the authorization code grant, which is what Pixie is uh, augmentation of. So the way an authorization code grant goes is you send the user to, basically you, you pre-register your application, which is called client, and that is pre-registered with the author. Take a step back. So there's three players. There's a client who wants access to data on behalf of a user. There's the authorization server, which does the authentication. And then there's the resource server, which holds that protected data, right? So those are the three big players. What the authorization code grant does is it's, it's a flow between those three players so that you get a token and you present that token to the resource server and get access to that precious, precious data. So the way the authorization code grant goes is you basically craft a URL that includes the, sorry, you register your application with the authorization server. So the client is registered with the authorization server that says, hey, at some point in the future, we're going to do a flow and you're going to give me back something that lets me get access to the resource server. Then the client creates a URL, which is basically a login URL, which points to the authorization server. The user clicks on that. They enter their credentials of the authorization server. They can, the authorization server can do whatever it wants to verify the user, right? It can do something as, as 
simple as just a username and password. It could do WebAuthn, which we talked about previously. It could do MFA. It could do things behind the scenes. We don't care. The authorization server then sends back an authorization code, which is a one-time use. That's presented by the client to like an application backend, which is exchanges, which takes the token and client identifiers and client secrets and passes them to the authorization server, gets a token. Token gets passed back to the client. Client then presents the token to the resource server. Sorry, if I had a whiteboard, I'd be whiteboarding it, right? I am. I'm just looking for a diagram right now because I know, you know, folks kind of get confused when it comes to client in the scenario of OAuth. That's yeah. So if you want an ASCII art one, the RFC 6749 has a couple, has one that may be too low tech for you, boo, but there, there is that. I'm sure there's other nice ones out there. So what Pixie sure. does, the issue with Pic, that Pixie helps prevent is if that authorization code gets stolen by somebody else, then they can pass that to the, the application backend and conceivably get a token on your behalf, which would then allow them to access resources as if they were you, as if they were the resource owner or the client, which we don't want to have happen. So what Pixie does is at the beginning, when you send that request over to the authorization server, you don't just send the normal things like the client ID and some other things. You send, you basically create a random value and you hash it with SHA-256 and you URL encode it. And you, so it's URL safe and you pass that over to the authorization server. Then the authorization server stores it off and then you go through the rest of the authorization code grant. And at the last moment when you are passing, when you're getting the token, you pass the clear text value of it, the thing that you hashed. Mm -hmm. So that says the same person that started this request is the person who's requesting the token because the authorization server can take the clear text, SHA-256, Shot 256 it and then see that that value matches what it was, um, what it saw beforehand. Gotcha. So that's, that's Pixie in, in a, a nutshell. To your point, lots of times you'll, you, you will have to just choose to enable it and a little library will handle it for you. A lot of libraries do all that, that SHA 256ing and kind of the matching and the providing to the authorization server. We've got, well, one of the research team folks brought up this one awesome. here as far as a doc. How do you think this alteration? Yeah, this is this is maybe a little more complicated. I mean, I think this is a, a good example. You checks the requested. Yeah, yeah, actually they did a great job of this. So yeah, so, author, you know, step six, where it says the authorization code, that's the thing that you're trying to protect with Pixie. And that is, that app XYZ is what I was saying when I, well, I called it the application backend. That's the thing that gets the authorization code. And what, what isn't shown here is that app XYZ has the previously, I mentioned at the beginning, you register an application and that would be additional information that's passed to the authorization server on, you know, step seven and step eight. But yeah, this is a great explanation of this. Gotcha. Gotcha. And then there's the resource server all the way over there on the right, which is, you know, I feel like sometimes what gets lost in talking about OAuth is at the end of the day, it's really about getting a delegated credential that you can just pass to your resource server. And that's really step mm. D, A through D. That's really where the magic happens. That's what people care about. Everything else is just getting in the front door. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Okay. That sounds really useful. Implementation wise, is this something that you just turn on with a switch? Your provider should have options for it or? 
Yeah, I would expect that your provider would would be able to say, hey, we support Pixie. And so with our SDK or even just with some code examples, right? Like, because honestly, what I kind of went through makes it sound more complicated than it is, but basically it's creating a random string, shot to fixing it, passing it along as a parameter. And then at the end, when you're making the token request, well, and then you have to store that random string someplace, right? In a session or something like that. And then at the end, passing it along. But I have definitely seen SDKs help with that. It's not super complicated once you kind of understand that it's really those three things, right? Nice. Cool. Yeah. All right. Sounds good. Cool. You have a few more things in the list? I do. I do. So the other one that I think has come up a lot, and I think it's an interesting problem because it kind of pits Dev- DevX versus security. And that is an allow list for URLs in the old specification and in, in 2.1, excuse me, they actually are pretty explicit about wanting you to put every, so sorry, the, the when when I said you send the the authorization code to that backend, actually, can you pull up the, the diagram again? Bring that up, please. So yeah, so when you're doing number six, step six, and app XYZ is getting the auth Z code, right? At that point, that redirect where step six happens, some the authorization server needs to know where to send the authorization code. And it does that via a, a redirect. And so in that registration process, the client registration process at the beginning, you can specify, hey, where do I send user? Where do I send this authorization code when the user is properly authenticated? Some people, especially if you're like doing test apps or you have a bunch of different query parameters or other things like that, they really want to be able to wildcard the URL. But mm. the specification is pretty clear that you want to outline every single one. And I did a test with FusionAuth and we were able to put 4,000 U- into in our configuration. So it's not necessarily mm. a limitation, it's like a dev, but it's a DevX thing, right? It's much easier to put a wildcard than to manage 3,000 URLs, 4,000 URLs. But the, the attack that you have to worry about if you allow a wildcard is suppose app.xyz lives at example.com and you have, you set up a wildcard of star.example.com is so any, any URL that is passed in and the client says, hey, at the end of this thing, redirect to anything under example.com. And that will do the token exchange. That'll do step seven and eight. The issue with that is that that if anybody, if any random user can set up a, 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 a host name at .example.com, like food.example.com or something else for user-generated content, or they can control that domain in some fashion, then suddenly you have this huge hole where an attacker can craft, can, can set up their own app XYZ, their own application backend, and then fish people to get them to log in. But instead of redirecting to your application backend, to your app or XYZ, they redirect to theirs that just happens to be sitting on your domain. Now, mm-hmm. how often is that scenario there? This gets back to the BCP conversation, right? Like it's a big hole, but if you know for now and forever that you never will let people can like users control domains or paths on your application you're probably okay but it's just easier from a kind of a spec perspective to say 
don't do it at all because that removes this entire class of threats. Because, you know, if you enable OAuth now and then a year later, some marketing person or some DevRel person comes up with this genius idea of like, we're gonna let people put up their own personal pages, suddenly you've opened this hole. Right, So fair enough, that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, and the last one, I know we're kind of, I don't know how much time we have, but the last one that I always like to say is these access tokens that you get, that you're presenting to the resource server, in most cases, they are bearer tokens. And I like to think of a bearer token like a car key, right? Like if I walk into a car key, or if I, if I find a car key and I can get into the car, I can turn on the car, it doesn't care who I am. I can drive off. So can my neighbor, so can a car thief. Bearer tokens are similar. So if you get them, you have to protect them. You have to store them carefully. There are some solutions that your listeners might be interested in. Depop is one that is working its way through the standards system right now. I don't think it's quite an RFC, but it's close. And MTLS. And those both are ways to like, so you can basically think of it like a car key where you have to put a thumbprint on it and it knows who you are. And so it won't start, it will, will start for you, but it wouldn't start for you. But those specs, I haven't seen a ton of implementations out there for them, but they're, they're coming and that's a really good solution to a problem because a lot of the attacks that people are worried about with OAuth is someone exfiltrating a token off and if you can bind the token to the client that's requesting it, then that's going to make everything more secure. Yeah, makes total sense. Very cool. We have, we have maybe run up on time. Maybe you've got a couple more points. Is there another one that we could cover in a minute or two? Sure, yeah. I mean, I, I, kind of a slam dunk one is don't put your access tokens in the URL. And the reason for that is you just don't know where that URL is going to go. It can go into log files. It can go into proxies, right? Go to F5 and get logged someplace. And because they're bearer tokens, it could be a security risk if someone accidentally grabs it or maliciously grabs it. So we really recommend you store tokens or you, you ship tokens over TLS. You want to make sure that in job, in mobile apps, you're going to want to put it in a header or I guess you put it where the API requires it, but typically that's going to be a header or it's going to be maybe a form parameter or a, or a cookie. Those are kind of the three places mm-hmm. over HTTP that it makes sense to, to store that, but none. I mean, I see that often in the URL parameter, not often, occasionally, and I'll always kind of like see what that token looks like because it's leaking information and you don't know where it's leaking information to. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, potentially anyone could have a forward proxy set up in a number of locations that could be grabbing that kind of stuff. Yeah, cool. Okay, great stuff. I think there was a couple other ones too. I'll drop some notes into a thread on community.f5.com with some of the stuff we talked about. Uh, The research team in the back was actually gathering up some URLs and whatnot. So we will uh, assemble a nice thread in there. I'll let you add to the thread, you know, any of your comments as well. And, and yeah, we will be having you on again in a few weeks. We'll work out the exact date for that. But for that one, we are going to look at OWASP mobile, OWASP for mobile, I believe. Yep. Yep. It's kind of some of the perspective of like, what, what is OWASP? I mean, a lot of OWASP thinks about like web applications and web browsers, but mobile clients are obviously huge. So like, what is, how does OWASP differ for that? Yeah, yeah, sounds good. And just for folks, you know, looking to connect with Dan, you've got your ex handle up there on LinkedIn as well. And then FusionAuth has resources to help people get up and running on OAuth. 
Yeah. So if you go to fusion.io slash articles, we have a bunch of identity and OAuth and authentication vendor neutral articles. So it's a great resource for get up to speed. Nice. Awesome. Okay, cool. Thank you very much, Dan, for joining me today. I will bring you offline. I'll touch base with you in just a minute. Thanks. Thanks for coming on. Alrighty. Awesome chat with Dan. I don't know a lot of people who can recite aspects of RFCs in that detail off the top of their head and draw diagrams in their head and, and draw complete flows like that. So Dan is fantastic to have on for his expertise like that. You can tell he obviously lives and breathes this kind of stuff. So if you need that kind of expertise and, and guidance, make sure you hit him up. Wonderful resource for this kind of stuff. I will remind folks, Dev Central Connects is supported by community.f5.com, which is you. Everybody who jumps on the forums, registers for an account, interacts with us, all of that kind of stuff goes to building up our community, sharing information like this. We try to bring in information from the outside, lots of information around F5 that we bring into it as well. Lots of F5 contributors and folks like Jason who jump on live, do the coding live, the build it live type stuff with everybody just to get you more up to speed on what you can do with your F5 gear. Whether that is the big IP stuff, there's some new stuff coming out pretty soon as well. I think Jason's going to be doing some stuff on that on that soon enough. And Nginx stuff as well. Nginx has their engine room live stream. So if you head over to Nginx's YouTube account, you'll see that as well. But we try to dabble with some Nginx over on the F5. It's all F5, but we, we try to dabble with it here and there on the Dev Central Connect side as well. So look for all of that type of information and you get it all for free if you subscribe whether that is on YouTube, Facebook, LinkedIn, X, whatever it might be, hit subscribe and, and follow along with us. So with that all being said, look for a thread on community.f5.com. We'll put all the information on there and otherwise we will see you on the next one. Bye for now.